Okay, wait, wait, just a second. I got to plug this. Yow! It's TechBiter Worldwide. I'm Bill Blinn with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. That's because we leave out the sports, most of the jingles, the weather, and the commercials. Podcast number 131 for February 22nd, 2009. This is going to be another one of those TechBiter Worldwide programs that is considerably longer than you've come to expect. Until now, the programs have typically ranged from 15 to 20 minutes. A few have been a bit shorter. Some have been a little longer. But a few weeks ago, I did a program that was a lot longer than normal, one that included far more material than I could ever have considered creating for commercial radio. On commercial radio, program segments are at most about five minutes long. A long interview extended considerably the length of that program. Today, you'll hear two interview segments, and each of them is about 12 minutes long. To reduce the program length to what has become normal over the past couple of years, I had considered editing the interviews for use in the podcast and then providing links to the full interviews on the website. In fact, I'd already done the editing when I decided that it would probably be better to include the full interviews here. If you have an opinion, I'd like to know what it is. I'm not so much counting votes for and against as I am looking for reasoning and logic for editing longer interviews for the podcast or for including them in full in the podcast. I like the idea of creating a program with a length that you can count on, but I also like the idea of being able to create a substantially longer program when the information available calls for a longer program. Clearly, those two ideas are mutually exclusive, and maybe that's okay. Maybe it is okay to aim for a specific program length, but also to allow the program length to increase when the information available merits the additional minutes. So, let me know what you think. And now that I've added a couple of more minutes with that long intro, let's get started. This program may be more than a little scary. Viruses, worms, denial-of-service attacks, keyloggers, screen scrapers, rootkits, spam, phishing, farming, identity theft, domain squatting, spyware. The list goes on and on and on. Just about every week, some new exploit or a new twist on an old exploit seems to crop up. Keeping your information safe is a never-ending task as new offenses are developed to keep up with each new defensive move. A book called Crimeware, Understanding New Attacks and Defenses, written by Marcus Jacobson and Zulfikar Ramzan, may frighten you, but it will also educate you. The book starts by reminding us that computer attacks are no longer perpetrated by people who want to be able to boast about infecting millions of computers. Today's attacks are staged by criminals who are intent on extracting money or information or both from your computer without the victim being aware of the problem until it's too late. Let me get my petty quibble out of the way right here. Although Jacobson and Ramzan are the primary writers, sections of various chapters were contributed by more than 20 other writers. Making a cohesive whole when so many contributors are involved is difficult, but Symantec Press would have been well advised to employ a stern editor who would rein in some of the excesses. 
One writer apparently learned the word taxonomy recently and decided that it was necessary to use that word at least 16 times in six pages, including three times in one short paragraph. And yes, I did go back and perform a quick scan just to count them all. Despite the book's minor shortcomings, and I must stress that they are minor shortcomings, it is a valuable addition to the bookshelf of anybody who's interested in a broad view of security challenges and examples of countermeasures that can be taken. For the more general reader, each chapter provides a high-level overview of a specific problem then the balance of the chapter deals with the problem in more detail for those who want the additional information. On the TechBiter Worldwide website, there are some examples of some threats and some countermeasures that can be taken. These deal with routers, a specific file called the hosts file, and the dangers of USB devices. To see those, check the TechBiter Worldwide website, www.techbiter.com. I had an opportunity to speak with the authors, Marcus Jacobson and Zulfikar Ramzan, to discuss their book, and the book is, if not terrifying, at least sobering. The two authors are well positioned to know the subject. Jacobson is a principal scientist at the Xerox Palo Alto Research Center. His specialties include cryptographic protocols and human factors involved in security. Ramzan is a senior principal researcher at Symantec, He specializes in understanding online fraud, phishing, and web security. Let's start with Zulfikar Ramzan. Let's just start by looking at, uh, looking back to history to maybe an eternity ago. Mm -hmm. Uh, I remember a time when computers didn't even need firewalls or anti-spyware or anti-spam filters or even antivirus. In fact, there there was a time when I told people, unless you're dealing with bulletin boards on a regular basis, and that kind of mm-hmm. dates me. Uh, you don't even need an antivirus program. Well, yeah, computer security is changing faster than most people can keep up with it. You need all kinds of different things just to make yourself safe. How would you characterize the the major changes that you've encountered over the past, oh, say, five years? So I think the big shift in the last five years has been the move away from I guess, notoriety-driven malicious activity online towards financially-driven online malicious activity. Uh, so if you think about it, you know, when, when computers first you know, became very popular and people started you know, using PCs, the big thing was, from a security perspective, was preventing things like viruses and so on and so forth from getting onto your machine. Um, that's still a concern, I think, but the main uh, shift in my mind has been towards people who are not just trying to get your machine infected, but trying to do so for some uh, financial reasons. So for example, uh, whether it's trying to steal your information or monitor what types of transactions you're doing online, or simply using your machine as a commodity to mount other attacks as a launch point, uh, if you will. Uh, So in my mind, that's been the biggest shift in the last few years. Now, we hear a lot about botnets, and there are estimates that just range by, I think, several orders of magnitude. Do you have any idea how many machines have become part of botnets? I think it's a tough number to estimate. I think the reason we see so many different numbers out there is it's there are different, I guess, discrepancies in terms of how you actually count, you know, what is considered a unique uh, infected machine. Uh, my sense is it's definitely in, in the millions, if not more than that, uh, just by looking at some of the numbers we get in at Symantec. Now, we only see, in some sense, sub subset of the uh, malicious activity going on in the world. It's always hard to identify what's malicious versus what's not from our global perspective, but we are able to see uh, some percentage of that. In my mind also, I think botnets are going to be a growing concern because they represent Uh, what amounts to a Swiss Army knife for attackers. You can really use them to mount all sorts of attacks or really use them to get 
all sorts of interesting, sensitive information from people's machines. Where are these threats going to go? What's going to happen in the next several years? Um, I think that we're going to see a number of interesting trends in the next few years. I mean, I think traditional uh, malware, if you will, has been really focused on uh, trying to steal, you know, real dollars and cents from, you know, credit card transactions and that sort of thing. What I wouldn't be surprised to see is that we start to see a growing interest in malware that targets, uh, let's say, secondary financial markets that may be derived from the Internet. So, for example, uh, various types of online games uh, do have uh, currencies associated with them. You can actually buy and sell goods in those games and acquire assets uh, that are virtual. Now, what's happening is a lot of those virtual assets have taken on a real-world value through secondary markets. People who are very interested in the game tend to want to pay real money for those assets. And so I think we're going to start to see theft of virtual assets as a way that uh, crime will proliferate. And the reason that that's interesting is that these virtual assets basically form what amounts to an unregulated currency system. And when it's unregulated, it's very easy for someone to come in and potentially uh, do damage to it without really being noticed because this currency system hasn't been set up for that. You know, whereas traditional currency systems have been set up uh, four types of monitoring and so on and so forth. So I expect that that's going to be one interesting area where we'll see uh, the move uh, in crime. Where uh, the other area which I think we're starting to see a bit more of now, and which we had talked about in the book, has been in the realm of politically motivated crime. Where and here we're talking about people who may not be motivated so much by money, but maybe have some political aspirations behind their activities. So I suspect that we'll see you know quite a bit of that moving forward as technology tends to develop. Uh, and then finally, I expect that we'll see uh, just in general crimeware trying to affect uh, new types of applications and new platforms, whether it be uh, mobile phones or PDAs or converged devices uh, for that matter. I think there the biggest challenge will be that uh, up until now there hasn't been one dominant standard in that industry. And as a result, I think the attackers tend to shy away from that because they, what they want to do is they want to be able to come up with uh, essentially a one-size-fits-all attack. So they would like to be able to attack a resource and have that attack be uh, successful in netting them a profit. Uh, if there are many different standards out there, it's very difficult to have a single attack that's going to, let's say, work across all those standards. So I suspect that's really been the reason why uh, we haven't seen as much activity uh, in the mobile or PDA space as in the personal computer space. But I think that as certain standards become more popular, we may see a change in that. What about virtual terrorism? Everyone in the country depends so much on the Internet. A couple of weeks ago, there was a fairly large outage in Chicago, and it mm -hmm. affected about half of the websites that I use on a regular basis. And for a couple of hours, I was essentially lost. What happens if someone manages some sort of an attack that takes down large pieces of the backbone? I, that'll be a very scary prospect indeed. I know that we had seen a big example of that in Estonia. And Estonia, you know, believe it or not, is actually a very wired country. I think people do most of their banking online in Estonia. Uh, they tend to be very, very dependent on the Internet. Uh, and there was a question about uh, an attack that actually occurred on Estonia's infrastructure. It was pretty clearly planned and, and coordinated to try to take down their infrastructure and prevent people from being able to access the types of services that they were used to accessing. Now, I think that particular attack, uh, there was a belief that it was uh, based out of Russia. Uh, you know, there are people who have dispelled that or people who have confirmed that. But I think the upshot is, is the same, is that we are definitely seeing, um, and, and I, I kind of, I guess, uh, bend this into uh, politically motivated crime work. But here, the idea is that we are seeing attacks on infrastructures, and it's certainly a lot more difficult to mount. Uh, but with technology today and with the really the advance in the way that malicious software has been written over the last few years, uh, it's becoming more and more 
feasible to be able to mount such attacks. One of the incidents that you mentioned in Crimeware, understanding new attacks and defenses, was that was one where some USB devices were simply lost outside uh, of a big office building. And of course, people found them, picked them up, took them in, plugged them into their machines. So yeah, I think that's a really interesting example of an attack because it relied on social engineering as opposed to technical engineering. The idea was that the attackers basically convinced people to compromise their own systems by essentially just inserting carte blanche, a, uh, an infected device, into their system and letting it to compromise them. Now, I think that whole move towards social engineering is a very interesting one because I, I believe that most of the attacks today try to take advantage of these social vulnerabilities. It's not just about finding a hole in the operating system or in an application. Uh, it's really about, can I just send this user an email and hope that they'll click on the link and infect themselves? And I think attackers are finding that that method is so successful that there's no reason to uh, really worry that much about doing something that's more technically sophisticated. You know, at the same time, we definitely still see attacks that are very technically sophisticated and certainly do see attacks that exploit uh, technical vulnerabilities in systems. Uh, but I would say that those are, uh, in some sense, the exception rather than the rule. The weak link in social engineering and in a lot of other instances seems to be the human. Right. And the solution is obviously going to be education, but there are... A lot of people, maybe the majority of people who use computers, don't really understand what's going on, don't want to understand what's going on. How do you get past that hurdle? That's an excellent question. I think we actually spend quite a bit of time in the book talking about user education as one particular approach for dealing with this problem. So I think ultimately, you know, I think nobody would dispute that the uh, ability to raise awareness in users and individuals who use machines uh, would be a great thing in terms of being able to mitigate a lot of these threats. At the same time, I think we found over the years that, that doing so is very challenging, and even trying to do uh, user education campaigns, uh, it doesn't always work as effectively as we'd like or as we'd hope. And I think the reason for that is, is, that, is as you said, is that ultimately this is not very simple technology. Underneath, there's a lot of complexity in the way systems work, and for someone to kind of walk in uh, without, let's say, a computer science degree to try to figure out whether they're being safe online, I think it's quite a lot to expect of end, end users. So I think that uh, you know, you're 100% right. I think the end users represent the weak link. At the same time, I, I feel that we should never blame the end user because ultimately we need to be able to solve these problems in a way that allow them to be able to do their uh, business. And we can't expect people to have to you know, understand technical details to, if, if they are you know, to use our systems. And so I, I, you know, my personal feeling is that a lot of it has to be addressed uh, through a combination of both technology and policy. So on the technical side, we have to do a better job of trying to detect some of these threats proactively and in a way that is still seamless and, and is essentially uh, unbeknownst or, or agnostic of the user so that everything that the user does is basically you know, transparent. Um, at the same time, I think the technology can only go so far. On the other end, I think policy is going to be an interesting area. I think one thing that's made this uh, whole crimeware proliferation happen is that we haven't uh, necessarily built in the right incentives uh, for making these types of activities uh, difficult for you know, uh, users to stay away from. So for example, you know, it might be the case today that if, if my machine gets infected, maybe my machine is only being used by an attacker to send out spam emails to some other machine. And so as an end user, I may not even notice or you know, even care that my machine has been infected since it's not directly affecting me. And these kind of imbalances, I think, make it very easy for an attacker to, uh, to come in and, and do things that can stay under the radar for a very long time. I think the way to deal with a lot of those imbalances is through the development of appropriate policy that uh, 
would basically set the playing field level and allow people to be, uh, I guess, aligned in terms of their interests and uh, goals moving forward. What about uh, Internet service providers? Certainly any home-based communications are going to go through there. Uh, companies often connect directly to the backbone. But for individual home users, would getting the ISPs more involved help? Uh, if so, how do, you, how do you incent them monetarily to get them to want to be involved? Sure. I mean, we have actually worked a lot with a number of major ISPs at Symantec, and I know that they're definitely... Uh, extremely interested in this problem. And they, and they have an economic incentive to be interested in as well because what ends up happening is a lot of these infected machines basically send out a lot of data. And uh, essentially that data, that, that pipe is being paid for by the ISP. So they definitely have an economic incentive in terms of being able to prevent some of this activity. Uh, I think that they can do some things, but they can't do everything. And the reason for that is that ultimately, you know, what they're good at doing is monitoring what's going on in the network. Uh, a lot of the attacks these days, you know, have have taken one step further and encrypted, let's say, the payload that goes between uh, the devices. And it makes it very difficult to monitor at a network level uh, whether something bad is going on. And so I think that, uh, you know, it'll be, in some sense, we'll need a defense in depth type of play here where the ISPs will play a certain role in terms of being able to protect against some of the more voter attacks that happen over the network. And we'll need client-side security software to be able to detect against attacks that are happening perhaps at the client itself and that are maybe encrypting their payloads uh, to servers. Seems to be like a almost like a game of uh, the technology moves forward, the defenses follow on, and and then the uh, the bad guys go out and find some new way to attack. Right. I definitely think there's a bit of a cat and mouse game, you know, here between uh, both the attackers and you know companies like ourselves and, and ISPs and so on who have vested interest in making this activity go away. Uh, I think that the big challenge is that you know technology is moving forward and attackers are. You know, certainly adapting to new technical trends. They're looking at what we're doing. They're trying to, uh, you know, modify their own activities as a result of that. But I think the one glimmering hope that often gets ignored in these discussions is that ultimately attackers are driven by profit. And when you have profit-driven attackers, you don't necessarily need to develop a silver bullet solution against them. You have to develop a solution that's good enough to limit their profitability or to hinder it or eliminate it. And that doesn't require maybe a perfect solution, but one that's good enough and at least sets the bar high enough that they're not willing to cross it anymore. And I think that's one of the saving graces you know, in today's world, uh, given the attackers that we're dealing with. They're not just you know, out there not behaving irrationally. They're really trying to make a profit out of what they're doing. We found that if we set the bar just high enough that they're not making money, uh, they tend to shift their attention elsewhere, or you know, certain types of activities do drop off and become less of a concern. That's Zulfikar Ramzan, Senior Principal Researcher at Symantec, He's a specialist in understanding online fraud, phishing, and web security. I also spoke with Marcus Jacobson. He is a principal scientist at the Xerox Palo Alto Research Center, specializing in cryptographic protocols and human factors involved in security. The security landscape is changing so quickly that it's nearly impossible for anybody to maintain an up-to-date understanding of what the threats are. So how would you characterize changes that have occurred over the past few years, and where do you see the situation evolving over the next few years? Um, it's best to look back maybe 10 years or so. 
when uh, viruses first started to become uh, something people were concerned about. What happened then was that, uh, you know, it was uh, fanatics who wrote viruses to compete with each other. This was, uh, they were written in college dorms. Um, they were just uh, ways of competing. Intellectuals trying to see uh, who could beat each other by spreading the most, spreading the fastest, not doing harm necessarily. There were only a few viruses that were really malicious, um, and it had nothing to do with money. With the development of a very strong e-commerce component on the internet, this has changed. It's entirely different nowadays. Uh, people speak of crimeware, not of malware or viruses so much, because crimeware describes the fact that um, it's done for a purpose, and that purpose is money. And uh, for that very reason, you could also see um, a change in where the attacks are coming from and how they're executed. This is done for profit um, by syndicated crime. Um, it's done by people some, sometimes employed by uh, um, organized crime and uh, or consulting for. Uh, very rarely done for intellectual stimulation. Email for a lot of years was considered to be essentially the weakest link in the security fence. That's because many different types of attacks could be launched through email. Is that still the case? Email is just one of the many ways. Um, looking back many years again, we could say that it was storage devices like floppy disks. That's how infections arrived to your machine because that was the only way in which your machine connected to the environment. And then as the internet came along, email was really one of the more common ways of establishing connections. But now, with an increasing number of touch points, uh, every application in a way is a gateway to your machine. And each one of them could have a vulnerability. Uh, there are so many more ways of gaining access to a victim's machine. And add to that that uh, the attackers have started to take advantage of social vulnerabilities, not only the technical vulnerabilities of the software, but the social vulnerabilities of the users, too. And it's a very complex landscape. Along that same general direction, there's a battle, and, and maybe battle is too strong a word, uh, that seems to exist between security and utility, or maybe ease of use. So maybe it would be better to simply say that security and ease of use are in contention rather than in a battle. Uh, is there a time that you see systems will be able to be both secure and easy to use? Absolutely. I think usability is almost a necessity in order to gain security. Um, say that you had to input a password that is 200 characters long and contains at least uh, 50 uppercase and 50 lowercase and 50 digits or something like that. Nobody would ever be able to do it. The kind of application that would protect itself in this way would not be used. Survival, of course, is both uh, getting users to accept uh, service and not shortcut the uh, security features and to have a good service in the first place. In order to make this happen, you'd have to make it attainable for the users. So security has to be somewhere in between the ridiculously low and the ridiculously strong. It has to be usable. And I've done lots of work on this, for example, within password reset, where uh, if you forget your password, then what do you do? 
well, you could have a very simple mechanism by which you say on a web form the city in which you were born or something like that. But that's very easily data mineable. And even though it's a common approach today, it's ridiculously insecure. Or you could have the user call somebody up and tell their life's history and be interviewed and so on. That might be much more secure, but it's much more costly. There is going to be somewhere, something somewhere in between that strikes a good balance between the usability and the security that we need. The book that you have written describes a, a situation in which some USB thumb drives were dropped in and around a building, and the expected results occurred. People found them, and they did what people would be expected to do. They took them back to their desk, plugged them into their computers, and the drives were loaded with malware. The Windows Auto Run feature installed the bad applications. In retrospect, Microsoft might consider the Auto Run feature to be a bad idea. It's certainly something that I turn off, particularly as a safeguard, and, and partially because uh, in a lot of cases, AutoRun is not really what I want something to happen when I insert a, a CD or a DVD or a thumb drive. So Microsoft could be considered partially at fault here, and it's really easy to blame users for connecting an unknown device to the corporate LAN. But in reality, most people don't think about security first. And I apologize, this is becoming kind of a long question. At a time when people won't even read things like manuals, how can the average user be educated so that they understand security implications of plugging in, for example, a found USB drive to a corporate LAN or clicking on a link that has arrived in an email from an unknown source? Well, one part of the problem here is user awareness and education. And I've spent a lot of time working on those and trying to figure out exactly how to communicate complex, often very complex, uh, problems to users who are not interested in learning necessarily. So that's one thing. There, there are also going to be technological approaches to this problem. Um, the problem you mentioned, it's, it's hard to say that it's Microsoft's fault only because in reality, it's something we just need increased awareness. Of. Say that you walk around on town and I'm at a street corner and say, you know, if you fill out a survey, it takes half a minute and I'll give you a free iPod. Whoa, that's quite amazing. You might uh, give out very vulnerable and, and, um, personal information uh, for doing that. But I could have just a ridiculously simple survey about what kind of countries you would like to go on vacation because that is not the purpose. The purpose is for me to get you to accept my gift. And an iPod is just like a thumb drive. It's a machine that you connect to your computer. If you buy a router on eBay, how do you know that it's got the right firmware on it? You don't. There are a hundred varieties to this problem. And the question is, what kind of thought process does the user go through in order to feel reasonably certain not to get infected? today, almost nothing. That's actually a very scary thought. If you had to narrow down security concerns to maybe just one primary concern, your top of mind concern, and to one solution, what would be that concern? And how would you propose resolving the problem? What's on top of my mind, um, and this is motivated by the dramatic spread of malware that we've seen recently, what's on top of my mind is the fact that there is a misalignment of incentives. The entities that have the most to lose, they're the financial service providers of the world, 
they are not the ones that install antivirus software. Of course, they do it on their machines, but they don't do it on your machine. You, the consumer, the end user, you're the one who affect their bottom line by having or not having virus on your machine, or, or more generically, malware or crimeware, but they have no way of knowing it. You do need an audit mechanism by which they can verify your security posture and be confident in it. Because, of course, the first thing that malware on a machine would like to do is hide its existence and erase the logs of it having entered your machine. So you do need a logging mechanism that allows any stakeholder who has money to lose by you getting infected and performing transactions that you didn't really want, for them to say, this is a bad transaction. We should block this or we should take further steps. We should check if this is really what we're going to do. I have been part of developing such mechanisms because I do think that they are both inevitable onwards and incredibly important to contain fraud. If fraud goes rampant, it's going to suck out all the profitability out of the internet and it's going to change for a much worse situation. Today, it's actually possible for fraud rates to go up 50-fold without even increasing the number of infected machines. That's because it's only 1 50th of all machines with malware on them that are used to commit financial fraud. If attackers the criminals on the web get organized to take not only one-fiftieth of all the machines, but all of them. It's going to change dramatically the profitability of online business. As a result of this, do you think that Internet service providers, which of course are, are very important in terms of home and small business users, should really get more involved in security concerns? Everybody should. At some point we might need government intervention, but of course everybody wishes for that not to happen, I'm sure including the government, but we hope that there will be some way of a self-regulating market where people understand the problem well enough to act on it in a reasonable way. Far too often today we see that companies do not ins invest the amount of money they need in order to get security, maybe particularly so during bad economic times where the investment is now and the potential losses are sometimes in the future. That's a horrible mistake. People should get smarter and invest enough money on both technology and education to feel confident that they're not sticking their neck out to become a big target onwards. I'd like to point out what is an underappreciated fact, that malware is not only a technological problem. Far too few decision makers out there understand the humongous social component of infection, where people might install by free will something that hurts their machines because they think, well, it's from their friends, it's a game, it's a free app, whatever you say. They do not understand the implications of the request by the end user to have a piece of software run on their machine. That's a big oversight. We need to start recognizing this as a social technical problem and deal with it accordingly. So it's more of a an, an individual, personal problem uh, and, and not so much really a technical issue well, here. I'm not saying that it's an individual's problem. I'm saying that it's the individual has a lot to do with the end result. Whereas I do say that user education is important. That's not the only answer to this problem. It might be appropriate user interfaces, understandable security. It might be uh, a way of 
classifying the security that you get and say, no, this is not enough because the user did not input a strong password. It might mean to cover all the cases. For example, password reset is one of my favorites that is so terribly neglected. Companies might insist on strong passwords, but not understanding what a glaring hole the password reset mechanism is. They must take into consideration all the components of security. A specialist in cryptographic protocols and human factors involved in security, Marcus Jacobson, speaking to us about the book Crimeware, Understanding New Attacks and Defenses, a book he co-authored with Zulfikar Ramzan of Symantec. The bottom line on the book, Four Cats. This is not exactly light or inexpensive reading. At $55, it is a significant investment. You can save $5 if you purchase the book from Inform IT Press. The book is comprehensive in scope, current enough to allow readers to understand today's threats, and sufficiently general to provide a good basis for anticipating threats that haven't yet been developed. If you'd like more information on the book, check out the TechBiter Worldwide website, www.techbiter.com, and you'll find a link there to the Inform IT website. I think there's something sleeping in my refrigerator. I know that I should take a look, but I think I'll wait till later. Those words are to the best of my memory from a song by the Talon Brothers in the late 1960s. And so it is with computers. You might think there's something in there that shouldn't be, but you really don't want to look. Delay might only make things worse, and there are some built-in Windows functions that could help you determine if there's something inside the computer that needs your attention. First, absolute rule. Never accept a pop-up offer to scan your computer. You may find these offers while you're browsing the web. Just ignore the offer if one pops up and get away from the website as fast as you can. And if something like this pops up when you're not using a web browser and it's not a warning from the antivirus program that you installed, then your computer is already infected with malware. I took a look around for some of the tools that you can use to track down the bad guys. There is the Windows Management Instrumentation Command Line. Big name. A lot of people don't even know it exists, even if they're computer technicians, and that's too bad because it is a useful utility. To use it, you need to make sure that your user has administrator access, then open a command window and type the letters WMIC and press enter. You'll see a message about the process being installed and then a prompt that says WMIC colon root forward slash CLI. At the prompt, type process and then examine the list for processes that are running from odd locations, particularly if they have strange names. By the way, if you use Windows XP Home, the Windows Management Instrumentation command line is not available. This is one of the many reasons that I recommend against saving a little money by selecting Windows XP Home instead of Windows XP Professional. Other commands and what you'd expect to see when you run them are illustrated on the TechBiter Worldwide website. Again, that's www.techbiter.com. Another application you might find useful is called Current Ports. You can download a copy of that from a website that's linked from the TechBiter Worldwide website. It doesn't even need to be installed. You just download it, unpack it, and run it. Current Ports will provide a huge amount of information about processes on your computer that are communicating either internally or externally. I wrote about it several weeks ago, and there's a link to that review on the TechBiter Worldwide website. 
Then there's Netstat. It's another helpful tool, built-in command from Microsoft. Open a command window and type Netstat space forward slash question mark. That'll show you a list of the switches you can use. It is essentially a command line view of the information that current ports provides, so I offer it only if you don't want to download current ports. I think current ports is easier to use and easier for most people to understand. I also strongly recommend that you have a copy of the Windows Ultimate Boot CD. Now, you need to make this for yourself. It's not something you can go out and buy. But you'll find the instructions on our website linked from the TechBiter Worldwide website. The instructions are very clear, step-by-step. They're easy enough to do. And this is the disc that everybody should have around. The Ultimate Boot CD can be extremely helpful in the event that there is a problem with your computer because you can boot from the CD and use utilities that are on the CD to perform various security scans and other tasks that are helpful in recovering a computer. It's particularly helpful because it keeps malware that might be installed on your hard disk from starting up with the computer as it would do during a normal startup. So you might think of the Ultimate Boot CD as kind of a fire extinguisher. In nerdly news, Microsoft has either committed an act of great marketing brilliance or an absurd waste of money. My bet would be on the latter, as Microsoft is once again copying Apple. Microsoft will soon open a chain of Microsoft stores, uh, like Apple stores. There's one huge difference, though. Microsoft doesn't manufacture computers, as Apple does. And Microsoft depends on third-party manufacturers who buy the operating system to install on their computers, and who might decide that if Microsoft wants to compete at the retail level, Linux would be a better choice. Microsoft has hired David Porter to set up the chain of stores. Now, this is somebody who at least should understand the challenges involved. He worked 25 years for Walmart, then became head of worldwide product distribution at DreamWorks Animation. So if anybody can make this work, this guy will. Microsoft is looking for what they call a better sales experience for their customers. That would seem to mean that they are not happy with the sales experience offered to customers by the existing retail stores. Microsoft's chief operating officer, Kevin Turner, says the company wants to improve, and I quote, the articulation and demonstration of the Microsoft innovation and value proposition so that it's clear, simple, and straightforward for consumers everywhere. Now, perhaps you have noticed that people who might otherwise say something like, we'd like to give our customers a better buying experience, will, when translated by the company's public relations folks, end up using words like articulation in sentences that are twice as long as they need to be to say what needs to be said. And the sentence won't even be particularly clear, simple, or straightforward. In any event, a year or two from now, we'll know whether this was a brilliant idea or somewhat less than brilliant. Microsoft has released the new public beta of a modified version of Entourage for the Mac. The release version is expected later this year. Changes are all below the surface, and unless you're using an Exchange server to get your mail, they're non-existent. For this reason alone, most Microsoft Office 2008 users should not download the beta. Users of the other two primary email protocols, POP and IMAP, will not see any differences between the beta and the -the out-of-the-box Entourage 2008, or at least they shouldn't. Microsoft has not made any changes there. 
All of the changes deal with converting from WebDAV to Exchange. In fact, Microsoft is cautioning that if you find any issues, which is Microsoftian for bugs, in the beta, and if those issues relate to POP or IMAP, you might as well just keep them to yourself. In the words of one Microsoft blogger, this beta is all about Exchange. So anything else is going to go on our list of stuff to consider in the future. The other reason you shouldn't consider this for use on a production system is that it will change the structure of the database that holds the messages, calendars, notes, and tasks. If you do install the beta, at least back up the database file first. And if you're looking for one more reason not to install the public beta, here it is. It's because it's a beta. Betas are released so that the application can be used in a work-like environment that will reveal hidden bugs. If you really like finding hidden bugs, beta applications are just what you're looking for. If not, just wait till the final version. It'll be released later this year. And it'll still have some bugs. I promise. Thanks for listening to TechBiter Worldwide, the podcast with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. I'm Bill Blinn. Check out the website, www.techbiter.com. And if you like, send me an email from there. Thanks. Bye-bye.